full disclosure, yo soy Rowan Farzad. Glenn Fry, we lost him this year. Fidel Castro, well, he died too. Both lives are inevitably associated with Miami's run as America's drug capital, an infamous superlative that goes back to the 1970s. So, sit back, tune in, and zone out now to the vivid stories of three Cuban-American drug smugglers who hit it big and lost it all in the Magic City. Stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my good friends at Elwood Thompson. Since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwoods and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from uh, deep in downtown Miami, just a few blocks away from Little Havana, is Carlos, uh, nicknamed Birdseed Ruiz. That's what you were known as in the 1970s and early 1980s, one of the prolific pot smugglers, the marimberos in Miami. How are you, sir? I'm very good, uh, Roman. How are you? Well, I want to I wanna get your temperature on this. Fidel Castro finally passed away last week. And when I was discussing having you on my show, you, you texted me. The tyrant is dead. Yes. And you sent me a link. And so how does it feel for you, you know, your your life since coming to the United States from Cuba? How old were you? I was 12 years old. And, and uh, we came with the idea that next year Castro government will be uh, defeated and, and, and Cuba will be free again. But that's, that was not the case. What and, year uh, was that? Took me back. 1966, uh, the freedom flights. This is five years after right, the Bay of Pigs invasion, where the Kennedy administration really early on tried to go in and you know take out Castro, but they abandoned the freedom fighters who were there, many of them South Floridian Cuban exiles. So there was no rematch, even though a lot of Cuban exiles in South Florida thought that this guy's not going to last. That's correct. We arrived in this country, and, and it was it, it was the land of, the land of the free. Uh, uh, don't get me wrong. I love this country, and we were you know we saw heaven, but we also wanted to go back. Uh, our family, my parents, they wanted Cuba free. We thought that that we would go back uh, 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 sometime soon, one or two years, but that was not the case. And Friday night. Uh, my phone goes with alarm on a, on a, on a, on the news, and I see uh, uh, Fidel Castro is dead at 90 years old. So I decided to uh, text everybody. I, I made some Cuban coffee. I was in Ocala, and and I decided to start texting my people. You were one of them, and I know this this uh, 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 news uh, uh, company was 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 not a liar. It, it was real that he was dead. I, I believe he was dead three or four weeks ago, and, and they, they prepare for any revolt or any, uh, uh, you know, anything that could happen against the government, and it took them two or three weeks to get the army ready and everything. I, I think Castro died sometime uh, before, uh, now, probably three or four weeks work, ago. Work this out for me. So you came to the United States. The initial thought is that you're not going to be here long. It's almost like a, a place to kind of— um, chill out and wait until it all boils over. But the world changed. There was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Fidel Castro stuck around. He allied with the Soviet Union. Uh, the Cold War shifted 
theaters, I think, for the United States, away from the Caribbean and Cuba and more toward Vietnam into the 1960s. When did you and your family realize you would be here for good? We were uh, relocated to Chicago. We came back like three months later, the snow, the cold weather, the wind. Uh, we decided to come back to uh, the Sunshine State, the Magic City. Today we call the Magic City uh, Miami. And uh, I was told by a friend of ours, says, this sun here costs money. It, it has a price. So uh, we established here and the Cuban community started growing. And uh, we stayed. We, we knew uh, that that it was going to take longer. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't expect uh, to take 50 years, but, you know, it's still there. They're still there. The Castros are still there. Sure. And Carlos, tell me when marijuana was introduced to your life. What did it mean in the old country? What did it mean when you were a teenager here in Miami? You know, some exiles tell me that the uh, marijuaneros in Cuba were, like, considered low-class people. Well, yes. So how did it become something more in Miami? Like, to, 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 to explain for our listeners, there were all of these Cuban exiles in Miami who were trained to go and, and storm um, the Caribbean and take out Fidel Castro. And uh, the CIA in the 1960s had its biggest station in the world in Miami. And so all of these orphaned mercenaries, if you will, suddenly had nothing to do when JFK was assassinated and LBJ shows up and shifts his attention to Vietnam. And they realized that they knew thousands of miles of coast in Florida and the Caribbean, and they could be masterful pot smugglers. When did that realization hit you? Well, at the age of uh, uh, 13, I, I smoked uh, my, my first joint. Uh, I, I came back to Miami and started going to a, a, a junior high called Ada Mary. Mm-hmm. Uh, was was more a more likely little Havana. Well, the, the Cuban community extended between uh, uh, Flagler and 7th to about Flagler and 22nd Avenue. That's sure, most of sure. the Cubans were concentrated. And uh, uh, but, but I was very careful because for my family, a marijuana smoker was the lowest of the lowest. Uh, you could drink uh, Cuban rum. You could drink beer. And, and, and that was the other way around here in the United States. An alcoholic here is looked at very, very lowly, but uh, uh, anybody smoked pot. Even even the United States presidents have admitted that to uh, have smoked pot, and it's, it's normal. Uh, uh, and as we see today, it's been legalized. But uh, going back to the Bay of Pig invasion, the, the United States, uh, the Cubans felt betrayed when the United States uh, decided not to back up the invasion after they sent them. And uh, they were, you know, they were not happy. Not, I'm not saying all of them. I'm not generalizing because uh, lots of them hated the, the uh, marijuana business. But uh, a lot of them that, that were decided to uh, convert the training, the mercenary training, into a smuggling pot into the United States. And we did it. We, uh, we started working using all that knowledge. Uh, we have uh, 400 miles of coast on the east and on the west. And then we started with Mexico, but the quality was very low on the pot, was very low. And then the Colombians decided to uh, uh, tag up and send us multi-loads, uh, loads up to 180,000 pounds at a time. And uh, it became the, the, the El Imperio de la Marimba, the marijuana empire. The empire of the marijuanero. And the marijuanero, you're saying, had a more patriotic sheen to it, like a class. Like I understand this, that one of the heroes of the Bay of Pigs, we, we talked about him, Jose Medardo Alvaro Cruz, um, he was looked at kind of as the, the, you know, the godfather of the seas. And he was a person who could bring in these motherships off the coast of Florida. And any 
Cuban fisherman or lobster catcher or shrimper who was unemployed could make a crap ton more money with fewer fish guts and fewer smell and fewer mess helping offload uh, bales of pot, which were called square groupers in the mid-70s. I guess that was the value proposition. And so this this provided some sort of economic enfranchisement for thousands of Cubans in South Florida. Oh, yes. Albero, which I, I, I respect a lot, uh, Albero was uh, like an idol to us. Uh, he was called El Padrino. Uh, the godfather, El Padrino, here, yeah. I have here in the studio with me, Jose Luis Acosta, one of the biggest, I, I believe, uh, his, his uh, involvement in, in the marimba uh, uh, smuggling was uh, uh, tremendous. Uh, he controlled between uh, Key West and, and the Panhandle uh, boats, fleets of boats, uh, millions of pounds of smuggle. At the age of 24, his bond, when he got arrested, was $24 million. Uh, Jose Luis' uh, uh, fortune was huge. I believe he was one of the uh, first to, to uh, do uh, jobs, uh, started doing jobs for the bigger, the bigger ones, and then he became the biggest um, <laughs> I heard a legend. Is it true that your your nickname was Birdseed El Caña because you were known to add weight to the bales of marijuana by putting birdseed in them? Is that true? I, I'm I'm so happy to see Nancy uh, uh, laughing. But uh, uh, I'll be honest with you that that we we started uh, we were we were on a farm and we had uh, 1,200 pounds of pot and and we said well, nobody's got pot. And it went from $200 a pound to $250 or $240. I said, you know what? Let's take advantage and put some seed. We had a couple of bags of, uh, uh, they called male marijuana seed. It does not grow. It's for bird seed. And they call him uh, Cañamón. And then one of the funniest guys I ever met, uh, Milton, he says, from now on, your name is Caña. And uh, that was it, Carlos El Caña. But, uh, you know, uh, all the call me Carlito El Pelú. And I was I was one of the youngest of, of the group uh, uh, when I started in this business because I wanted to learn from the older guys, uh, most of the, uh, the, the 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 older guys, uh, uh, the marimberos, you know, the big marimberos, uh, going back to 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 the '60s, uh, and uh, they used me. I, my English was perfect, and I ended up uh, distributing thousands and thousands of pots a week. Uh, a pound. And, uh, Carlos, what were the economics? How did it work? Like wholesale, you would arrange to bring them in from the coast of Colombia, marijuana, good marijuana. And then how would you, how would like a bale work? What were the economics of offloading and then breaking it down, I say, into dime bags or whatever the value was on the street? At uh, the beginning, we went down south and we loaded our own boats and then, and then uh, they started using fleets of ships. Uh, mother ships, what they call them, 200 footers, 300 footers, uh, put 60, 70,000, 80,000 pounds. We would go out there 70, 80, 100 miles out when it was Virgin, uh, the, the Bahamas Quezal Bank. Uh, 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 there was there was no air surveillance. Uh, it, it was Virgin. Uh, there was no surveillance by the government, very, very little. I had a ship in, in, in the Quezal Bank for about seven days until I emptied it up. And we would go out there and pick up uh, anything that we pick up and bring in. It, it, it would it will uh, pay back 80, 80, 90 dollars a pound to the Colombian uh, suppliers, uh, the the is uh, a bunch of them. But uh, uh, so how would it work? Like if you if you invested ten 
thousand dollars in product, what would be the return on the product at the peak of of, of marijuana smuggling in the mid seventies? And let and let everybody understand. I mean, just as a backdrop, that Jimmy Carter was president. There was a perceived detente between the United States and Cuba. There was this understanding that. Pot would probably be legalized, but it didn't happen. So you were still able to make a market in selling marijuana. What, what, what were you making? The investment was on our own equipment. We needed to have a reliable equipment to say, okay, we got 100000 in a chip out there. We got five lobster boats, or we got two shrimpers that will hold 40,000, 50,000 pounds apiece. But these shrimpers cost money. These lobster boats cost 100, 150000 We will supply all the, uh, all the transportation from the mothership to land, weigh it, uh, uh, sell it, uh, collect the money, and then supply uh, uh, delivery of the money in 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 here in, in the United States. The Colombia will pick it up, and and they will take it down south. A uh, hundred dollar bills uh, were were more valuable than twenties and fives and tens, and there, there was there was a procedure uh, on 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 the business, but uh, uh, no more than eighty dollars a pound, uh, hundred miles out there. Sometimes I I, I went to uh, Mexico. Uh, uh, borderline uh, Isla Mujeres at one time because there was an emergency and I had to do it. You you did you did have to comply and help uh, help when there was an emergency too. Otherwise, you will lose the connection in Colombia. But the most that I sent down to get a, a hundred thousand pound load was a hundred thousand dollars out of my own pocket for the uh, uh, Colombian uh, Coast Guard so they won't mess with a ship coming out of Colombia. And so when did you first experience wealth in your life? When did you feel like you weren't an impoverished guy going, you know, a dropout from Ada Merritt or from that area in Little Havana? When did you first experience the high life in Miami as a pot smuggler? Well, I started as a worker for $15,000 a night. And, and from there on, I was given a, a job that, that uh, incurred a lot of responsibility to take care of a business of 100,000 pounds, which was the largest seizure in the United States and the third largest in the world. Uh, it happened in Car Sound, September 27, 1977. Uh, uh, the persons that were supposed to uh, uh, do the job had a problem with the law and they had to leave and we took cover, uh, which gave me experience not to take cover of something that you didn't start with. When you start something, then you know what's going on. But uh, uh, we managed to, uh, we managed to, uh, we got arrested. Uh, 13 guys got away. Uh, 13 of us got, got uh, arrested. But uh, everything worked out. Uh, we, the charges were dropped. Uh, there was a lot of, we had a lot of power, uh, uh, money power. Uh, politicians uh, were bought. Uh, there was a lot of corruption. But that started me in the business. From there on, I became a marimbero. And, and I proved myself that I was reliable. I was a May guy, and, and I was contacted. And from there on, my wealth, uh, you, have to, you have to realize something. Back then, uh, a quarter of a million dollars was a lot of money. Mm. Uh, $250,000, uh, half a million dollars uh, was a lot of money. And uh, at the age of uh, 25 or 26, I, I, I was very rich. Uh, I, I didn't even know what I had. I had bags of money here, there, boxes. What would you do with cash? How would you launder it? I mean, this is a, you know, anybody reads the history of <laughs> drugs in Miami, the, the seizures were so big. One, for example, that the Florida Power and Light Company, FPL, you'll, you'll see it in the book, next year was burning bales of marijuana instead of, of oil during the energy crisis. And two, there was an explosion of banks 
up and down Brickell Avenue, which is kind of the Wall Street of Miami, just there to launder money. Uh, where in an, in an environment where you were getting you know nine or ten percent yields on CDs and savings accounts, the you the drug smugglers would actually pay the banks to launder this money or to 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 make it somewhat semi-legitimate. What would you do with all that cash? Back then, uh, you know, anybody could launder a hundred thousand in five minutes. Uh, they would charge you five, ten percent. Uh, there was there were no strict law. Remember, uh, crime brings law, and 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 uh, if you compare it to real estate, uh, residential brings commercial. But sure. uh, the laws started laws started to be established. Uh, if you deposit more than ten thousand dollars in the bank, they're going to report it. Back then, they didn't do that, mm. and then the, 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 most of the Cuban chains uh, uh, banks, uh, a lot of money started rolling. Uh, it's been seen on 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 movies that have been made before, and and it's real. Some some a lot of fiction in those movies, but uh, uh, some is real. Uh, you could walk into a bank if you had a, a connection, and or, or go to his house at night and drop five suitcases of money. He will he will uh, uh, put it in the bank and in a bank account and charge you, and and convert it into uh, clean money. What they call uh, clean money. Were you buying horses? Were you buying cars? I mean, this was the biggest cash economy uh, in the United States. I mean, there was a huge real estate explosion. People just wanted to buy tangible assets to kind of hide cash in. Yes, a lot of money was laundered through uh, uh, construction. The construction boom started in Miami. Miami started growing. Uh, remember, Palmero, Palmero Expressway was from Flagler to US-1. Uh, uh, the turnpike was not built back then. Uh, Miami today is like, like metropolis. It's, it's incredible. It's the gate to the Americas. But uh, uh, back then, there were several ways to launder money, construction, businesses, uh, you name it, you name it. I, I bought, <laughs> I had a lot of toys. I, I, if you will sell me a, a golden coffin, I, pr- I probably would have bought it. But uh, <laughs> uh, we all bought, uh, I had horses. I, I had a plane, and I'm not a pilot. Uh, what am I doing with a plane? Well, I got a plane. Anyway, uh, uh, cowboy boots by Lucchese, you know, the best boots, uh, gold, uh, Rolex. Any, we, we will buy, you know, you could tell a marimbero from, from, from a regular uh, uh, hardworking person. Now, I want to understand something, Carlos. Uh, when did he get violent? And, and in the same question I ask you, when were you introduced to cocaine, which was far less bulky, uh, far more profitable per kilo? Uh, it could be cut and diluted, but it was also dangerous because you're dealing with, at that point, the Medellin cartel and some people who were not content to be gentlemen smugglers, but they were actually pretty violent. Um, I also understand in talking to you for the book that cocaine in Cuba, in pre-revolutionary Cuba, was considered a delicacy. It was called postre, which is like pastry. Uh, you'd go to a governor's mansion or a doctor's uh, you know, country estate, and, and there would be some like on a little ivory saucer or a gold saucer. So when did you first get introduced in the United States to cocaine? Well, uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, back then, the marimberos, the marimberos, we were very strict about having any of our guys involved in cocaine smuggling, because cocaine was very, very persecuted by the government. Uh, DEA started to 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 open offices everywhere, and, and cocaine wasn't our thing. But it, it was I used cocaine as as uh, as uh, uh, a stimulant, as my own my own use. But but let me say something. Uh, marijuana 
I smoked pot for many, many years. There hasn't been one case of marijuana overdose in the United States or in the world that I know of. Uh, we never shot a cop. We, we didn't use weapons when we worked. Uh, it was the, the, the best era, and, and all eras passed, but the, the, the Martin Beros era was, was awesome. Discotheques, uh, the mutiny, as you know, uh, uh, Faces, uh, uh, Casanova, uh, Honey for the Bear. But I used cocaine uh, as, as a pleasure. But uh, there were other groups that, that, that were involved in cocaine trafficking. They made more, a lot more money than us. But they were they were persecuted, and nowadays they're serving uh, they're serving a lot of time. There's one that is uh, his release date is 2170. Yeah, that's 160 years from now or whatever, uh, which I feel sorry for him. But uh, um, cocaine is a different story. Uh, it was not inviting to me mm. because my bosses didn't want me involved in that. And, and as the case with the Colombians, uh, the, the Oshoas, the Oshoas were involved in marijuana uh, uh, supplying at the beginning. When they got involved with Pablo Escobar and cocaine, they went down. Those empires were very, very well persecuted. When did you first get arrested? I mean, in the few minutes I have left with you, when were you first busted and when did you first do jail time? You did a total of eight years overall. Um, having smuggled pot, but when were you first arrested? I noticed this like like last year when I started writing my book. It's so amazing that that I that I started on this business with two bales of pot, and I get indicted on two bales of pot in Buffalo, New York. Not even in Miami. I was not indicted in Miami on anything, and and I was also indicted on a uh, there was a bar brawl and and uh, a, a guy that was not a very well uh, liked guy. He was involved in stealing, robbing. Uh, try to kill my brother, and unfortunately, I have to defend myself, and I did time for that, too. The time that I did with the state and the feds were running concurrent. Uh, he uh, tried to kill my brother, and unfortunately, I, I had to defend myself and my brother's life. But it, it was an era of, uh, and don't get me wrong, in, in, all, in all of, of uh, crime, there always a, a death. Uh, some of my friends lost their life for stealing what didn't belong to them. Uh, women, accidents in boats. But uh, the, the marijuana empire was not a killing empire. We never killed the cop. Uh, you're caught, you're caught. We try to buy the judge, try to buy the prosecutor. We have millions of dollars stashed back then. That was a very honorable thing. I mean, you try to buy the judge and the prosecutor. Then somebody told me, somebody told me, in fairness, um, you know, and I'll close on this thought that what did you expect in pre Castro Cuba? Everybody was for sale. It was a corrupt. Bastion, every judge, every government official, every governor, every mayor was for sale. So as Cuban exiles stayed in Miami ever longer, it was only expected that they could buy judges and prosecutors here. I invite the public to, to, to be aware of the, uh, the series in Spanish, the, the, uh, the Imperio de la Marimba, and also in the process of, of contracting for a movie uh, like a scarce face type. In Cuba... Uh, that was, that was, it, it happened. It happened. In my hometown of Cienfuegos, somebody got cut with a half a gram of abello. Abello was a delicacy, cocaine made by labs. Uh, I didn't even know what cocaine was, but I remember my dad used to tell me there was a big thing because somebody uh, got paid in, in the court and replaced uh, the, the, the cocaine evidence because the, the, the people that got arrested, the person that got arrested was the uh, Well, don't, the don't, give, very... don't, give it all, don't give it all away to us. I, I know that every one of our listeners uh, today is going to expect 
The book, the movie, Imperio de la Marimba, right? Empire yes. of the Marijuana Smuggler. Carlos Birdseed Ruiz, sir, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to some of the famous pot smugglers in Miami in the late 70s and early 80s. Names that you'll see in my book, the upcoming book, Hotel Scarface. Uh, joining us in Miami right now is the beautiful, gorgeous, what did you tell me once, six foot tall in heels, uh, Nancy the Blonde. How are you, madam? I am well. How are you? <laughs> Actually, you're not well. You have a cold and everything, and I'm so grateful that you schlepped it to come to Little Havana and to do the show. Uh, but your story was so fascinating to me in that, um, you know, you were born in the United States to Cuban parents. You're a Texan. Yes. You're kind of like a, a cowgirl person. Yes. Uh, you live in ranch country in Miami. When did you first learn of uh, the kind of the pot culture? You were a very attractive, tall, blonde woman. You were invited to the discotheques in Miami by the older pot smugglers. And when were you introduced to the business of smuggling, to the rush of smuggling? Probably when I was about 15, going on 16. Mm -hmm. I had a cousin who used to have a boat and he would go out to the Bahamas and wait for the planes to bombard the bales and pick them up and bring them home. And uh, went out with him to see what it was all about. And uh, that's exactly what we did. So what was it, a speedboat? Was it a fishing boat? Yeah, just open fishermen. Not not necessarily speed, just something that you would be in the Bahamas with fishing. Just a pleasure. I don't understand. You're there like in a swimsuit, and he's like, are you bored? Do you want to go pick up some bales with me? It was my cousin who was doing this, and they accustomed to carry women— Taking a couple, you know, couple of girls, couple of guys was customary to be out on a boat for a weekend out in the Bahamas, uh-huh. just, you know, skiing, fishing, bathing, snorkeling. So you did it in couples and it didn't look... Shady. Yeah, it didn't look shady. It was, it was very normal. And we were just there more, I guess, for looks than anything else at that time. Almost as a decoy, as the big, tall, blonde there. Almost, <laughs> it, It's what yeah, you would expect much, to see in the Bahamas on a boat. Um, pretty much. It's, it's, you wanted to blend in with everybody else. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of tourists, um, them all being Latin men. You got the blonde American with the perfect English. Um, you kind of looked like a tourist. They didn't speak. They made me talk <laughs> when we did customs and those sort of things. That way they wouldn't suspect that we were your typical Cuban doing something illegal. Were you in high school then, I guess 15 years old? Pretty much. It was my last year. After that, uh, school didn't interest me too much. Were you a good student? I was average. And so what did your parents think? Did your parents think like, you know, girl, you party too much? You're out at the discos? You're. Uh, my parents didn't find out until the later years when they couldn't figure out why I always had money but I didn't work. And that's when it became. But I, I kept that from them uh, for quite a long time, quite a long time, until one day my mother said, my mother thought I was prostituting myself. Oh. And she came to me one day and she said, you got to tell me what you're doing because this just isn't right. And I had to tell her the truth. I would rather her not think I was prostituting myself. Thank God I never have. And I let her know the truth. And I think that was probably even worse because... <laughs> That didn't make her happy. So what was it about smuggling outside of the money? I mean, what, what did you get paid for your first load? I mean, at some point, your cousin or someone must have said, hey, look, Nancy, don't, don't just be a decoy. You know, help me move some of this stuff. Let me teach you how to operate a boat. Let me teach you how to, 
you know, jump uh, in the water. The boat or get operations, bails. I had pretty much grown up on the water as mm. as young as I can remember. My dad has always had a boat. We're three girls. I was daddy's tomboy. Uh-huh. So dad would go to the Bahamas during the weekends with my great uncle, his uncle, and myself, and I would tag along with dad. So as far as the boating, learning the waters out there in the Bahamas, Chub K, Kat K, that area, I pretty much knew them from going on weekends with my father. Hmm. And the boating practice makes perfect. What Uh, did the first smuggle feel like then? Very exciting. How so? Very exciting. My job there was... (laughs) I'm so curious to vicariously live through this smuggle. So you're 15? Um, You're 15? My job was to count the bales as they came out the plane Mm -hmm. to make sure that they we recovered all of them. The Mm -hmm. plane would go across in X's, and as they made their pass, they would drop their bales. I had to count and make sure that all of them were retrieved from the water when we were done before the sun set. So we had to do it quickly. It's an adrenaline high. It's a rush. Mm -hmm. There's no drug that can equal it. Just a a rush, a feel, hurry, get it, go, move, do it, you know, wash it, clean it, put it away. (laughs) It's the adrenaline. Then what I want to know is, did anyone pre-negotiate like, all right, girlfriend, listen, if you count them for me and we make it all right, like, what am I, how does a person even negotiate? Like, I'll hook you up? Is it just, um, I'll take care of you? Oh, no, I... I was told what we were going to do before uh-huh. I left. I mean, it's not like I went out there blinded. I agreed. Uh-huh. Um, and it was all dependent on what came home. Um, sometimes you lost a few bales. Sometimes they never showed. Sometimes they had to abort before they got to you. Um, you may have had boat trouble yourself and not made it to the spot on time. Um There were so many different circumstances. You pretty much got paid when you got home. It wasn't like you were given, okay, if you go out, you're going to get X amount of dollars. No, it was like, this is what we're going to do. And if we accomplish our goal, then we'll all be happy. So what was the first payment like? Like, how did you get back? Or um, do you remember when you stepped foot on land? Just walk me through that. We went to Bimini. Uh Uh, My cousin, myself, uh, another gentleman and his wife. Um, we waited till just right before sunset. Uh, contact was made by radio from the plane. We were in our spot. They started bombarding. We started picking up and putting it in our compartment. Uh, cleaned up the boat. By sunset, we were going back into Bimini. And we parked. We hosed down the boat, went to big game, had dinner, came back and slept on the boat. Afraid somebody might want to walk off with it. Next morning, we fished for a little bit, caught some fish, some yellowtails, and we slowly trolled back to Miami. Got to Miami, all over cut, pulled it onto a trailer there on 79th Street. We drove to the other gentleman's house. He went upstairs, grabbed a whole mess of money, and came back downstairs and started handing it out. And what did you get handed? Do you remember? Like, it was... It's probably about 8000 all in cash and like twenties or hundreds. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> what did you do? What did you do? Like you suddenly a teenager given eight thousand dollars of cash in the late seventies. In my bathing suit, I went shopping. <laughs> <laughs> what did you What did you buy? Like, hey, wait, are you literally? What did you? you so you're in your bathing suit, eight thousand dollars. What in twenties and hundreds? Did you stuff it in a car? Did you put it in a backpack? It's not that big of a stack. You can put it in your purse. I uh-huh. like big purses. Um, service merchandise had just opened. They the wanted to compete store. with Luria's. Right, right. And uh, 
I spent probably about five grand in, in, in service merchandise. I walked out with TVs, cameras, jewelry, watches, um, just kind of went crazy. I didn't think I'd ever see that amount of money again. Hmm. And it was still on the rush, still on the rush from everything that had happened. It's like I didn't want this to end. I wasn't going to sleep for a couple of days after that, I promise you. So really it was the rush that you were addicted to yes, more than the money? Yes, it was, it was. At the same time, knowing that, that, that you had your own little chunk of cash um, at that age, that meant a lot. I didn't have to ask anyone for anything. I, I, I did what I wanted when I wanted. And that's a good feeling, mm. to be in control of yourself at least. Yeah, I guess that's what pretty much kept me going, that I, I, I knew I, I was... I could do whatever I wanted. Mm. There was no limits. Now, were you were you scared when you saw things like in, in the cocaine community, like the Dadeland shootout in uh, nineteen seventy nine? you know, there was that a, got a, nasty. A, that got nasty, and and then that's why nobody wanted to traffic in coke back in the days when when these weed trips were going on. There wasn't um, too many boat captains that were willing to traffic in coke because, mm. like Carlos was saying, it was very very tough as far as the law was concerned and the amount of time you were given. So everybody wanted to do just strictly weed. Nobody wanted to to load coke back mm. then. That came in much later um, and just got violent and quick. Um, the Marielle, the ripoffs. So the uh, Marielle boatlift, like, let's just back into that. This is 1980. You have roughly 120,000 refugees are let go out of Cuba, Fidel Castro he calls America's bluff and vice versa. A good chunk of them are violent criminals, and many of them end up just smuggling here. There was one that you crossed paths with. Uh, he's in the book, Coca-Cola Yero, the Cuban national bicycling champ, became right. a very ostentatious character at the mutiny and uh, learned to drive a boat and learned to eh. traffic in coke. <laughs> but you said to me that he was more flash than anything else. But long story short, by the mid-'80s, it, it did move to cocaine, the business, and yes, that's it where it became more dangerous. When, what did that What did that feel like for you? It was a bigger paycheck. Hmm. It was a bigger paycheck. Um, that was really the only difference to me. The thrill was still the thrill. Um, it was going to happen. We mm -hmm. had done it with the weed, so why not, you know, with, with the coke? It had to be done a little different. Um, they were more secretive as far as, yeah, it wasn't so much open fishermen's and, and just regular cruise boats. Yeah, we're either getting into heavy, heavy speedboats or luxurious yachts where specific stash holes were made for the merchandise to come in. And mm. hell, I was boarded three times on my way out once I was loaded and once I returned. And I got three clearances from Coast Guard there was no way you would know. Was it because of your bikini? Do you mind my asking? They came on and you guys were so good at, at, at hiding, concealing the coke that they had no idea. Oh, they had no idea. They kept us at Port Everglades for four hours and tore up the master bedroom in that yacht and never found anything. Where did you keep it then? It was underneath the bed. Oh, and they, there was no sniffing dog or anything to find it in there? Oh, they brought dogs on. That doesn't matter. <laughs> Uh, Renee, Renee uh, did a good job there. Your boyfriend, Raspal, Snow Cone. Yes, he was very good at that. You'll read the rest of it in the book. But in closing, Nancy, um, when you did get snagged in the late 80s, um, there were, there were a, a lot of your uh, fellow smugglers were persuaded, especially by this one Marielle character, Coca-Cola, to quote-unquote jump on the bus. Um, yes. If you're given a sentence like this guy got 40 years in the mid-80s, 
you realize that you can get that shaved down substantially by offering information on bigger catches. So if you give it to the sure. prosecutor and if you're using the prison phone to call people like you and other fellow smugglers and say, girl, you got to jump on the bus. But you were really famous inside the system for um, even though you got a sentence of what was it, nine or 10 years, you refused to inform. We hung in a, in a, in a pretty tight group. And that's the rule. That's the way I at least came into this business. And, I mean, I understand everybody's predicament is their own. Um, and he felt he couldn't do the time that was given to him. He felt he could spend the money but not do the time. Well, I was brought up a little different. I was the only female out of 17 men. And I don't know, maybe because it was expected of me, I was going to make sure that I didn't. Um, I, I it's, it's just a loyalty that you have to people that, that, that you know, I got into this on my own will, and, and why should anybody else pay the price? So you ultimately served four years. Yes. The rest on paper. Yeah, the rest on paper. And, I mean, coming out of that, just in closing, um, when, when you look back at this life, you know, you're now a mother, a very responsible person. You have a day job. I've, you know— uh, I, I, I really pleaded with you to, you know, cooperate for the show and the book. It's not like you're looking for, you know, any old glory out of this. A lot of people in nah. Miami have reintegrated back into the life. We've lost a lot of friends. A lot of people are still in the prison system. Uh, you know, close me out. What would you think about your, I guess, 40 years or so in the business? No regrets. No regrets. Um, don't feel I wasted any time. Um while I was there, I met a lot of good people while I was locked up. I met a lot of good people while I was doing what I was doing to get locked up. I can sleep at night with my doors open. Um, I can walk the streets and not have to look over my shoulder. Am I ashamed of what I did? No. Would I do it again? Yeah, I think I might. Um, not at today's date and, and time. But if I was, if I had to do it over again, would I? Hell yeah. And on finally, on legalization, I mean, do you think that within 10 years, states, state after state after state, I don't know what the Trump Justice Department is going to do, but you can now fly to Colorado and very comfortably smoke this stuff. And, and it would stand to reason that the price of the commodity is going to collapse. Uh, it takes a lot of the rush and the intrigue that you originally discovered in 1977 out of the business. I think it'll be a while before that. I don't think you got to go that far to Colorado to smoke weed. Um, anywhere you turn around, it's it's there. It's just uh, inevitable. They're going to have to, you know, stay with the times. I think medicinally, it's 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 incredible the benefits that it has. Um, I, it's not going nowhere. Pot's going to be around, and it's been around, and it's going to stay. Nancy La Rubia La Grande. Texas born, the star of the smuggling circuit, the woman that everybody wanted. What did you say? Six foot two inches in heels, you told me? Six one. Gosh, that must have really stood out, especially as a blonde, uh, you know, in this in this row of, of Cubans and <laughs> Colombians. You're too smuggling. kind, too kind. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking about the heyday of the Cuban pot smuggler in Miami, as illustrated by guest Carlos Birdseed Ruiz, uh, Nancy La Grande, La Rubia, and uh, last but certainly not least, Jose Luis Acosta, one of the most prolific uh, exile pot smugglers in Miami in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, your nickname, Jose, was Jose the Hose Acosta. That's what the, the white people would call you? Yes. Uh, 
That's what that came up in my indictment. For the Americans, guys, it was better to say hose. The hose. So how did you get that nickname? The prosecutor was the one that gave me that name because it was easier for the American uh, people to call me hose than Jose. But the prosecutor was the one that gave me that name uh, in my indictment, tried to tell the jury that I have a hose to bring pot from Colombia to the U.S. You were like a hose, a hose to bring pot from Colombia to the U.S. Yeah, they, they use it, that main name for the benefit. Now, Jose, you were born in Cuba. When did you come to the United States? I uh, came to the United States on 69. So 1969, and what was that like? Did you have family in Little Havana or Hialeah or? Well, I come here with my grandfather and my dad. Uh, they have some, some cousins here in Miami. I grew up here, went to school here, and make friends here. You know, most of my life I spent it in the U.S., yes. And so when were you first introduced to pot smuggling? I believe it was on 74. Mm-hmm. I got married pretty quick when I was 16 or 15, I guess. I went to work. I quit school. I started working. I don't know if you remember back then was a, kind of a crisis in the United States. It was even hard. The oil crisis. Yeah, the oil crisis. And so let me illustrate the backdrop for this because there are other people I've interviewed who said that with a lot of people out of work generally, with a lot of exiles not gainfully employed in Miami, uh, many people were looking for things to do. And especially if you were in the boating business and you were not selling many boats after the oil shock in the early 70s, and uh, the marijuana business is just booming in the wake of Watergate and the very stoned 1970s. And point three is you have thousands of fishermen uh, in South Florida, Cuban exile fishermen who have boats, um, have a hunger to go out and deliver things, and they are looking for work. And then you throw in the final element to it is the CIA intrigue, which we said the people who were trained by the CIA to go and storm Cuba and take out Fidel Castro. When that wasn't happening, they realized they could train all of these fishermen, train their fellow countrymen and exiles to smuggle pot. Let me tell you a little bit of the story that I live. It's not something that I, I'm making up or telling you about it. Probably back then, if I would have had a nice job, I would have never been a, a drug smuggler. But the uh, job was, went real bad. Back then, I used to work on construction. Construction wasn't real bad. And I started fishing on a small 16-footer that I had back then. Me and my dad used to go fishing, get the boat out of the water, and sell the fish on the streets. Then I made friends with this guy we used to call him Loco. His name was Marcial. And he had a small boat. It was a 65-footer wood boat, a Cuban boat. And he gave me a chance to go fishing with him. And then we went and did a load for one of his friends. When the first this business start, all the, the U.S. fishermen, the, most of them was Cuban, we used to fish in the Bahamas. Hmm. And if you tell one of those fishermen to go and put pat on their boat, they don't want to hear that. You say, they used to tell you, if you told me that again, I'm going to call the cops on you. Mm. But what happened was then, a year later, the Bahamian government shut down the bank for the American vessels, and they was not allowed to fish anymore in the Bahamas. 
So what happened, those fishermen that was losing their boat, their house, that was going to the real crisis that was back then. So let me let me explain that. The Bahamian government banned, essentially banned, South Florida fishermen from their waters, right? And, and they said, some of them said they wanted to protect the, the government was corrupt in the Bahamas in the mid-70s. They wanted to protect their uh, spiny lobsters uh, from overfishing, from all of these, you know, hungry and avid Cuban fishermen in South Florida. But whether or not, you you know, you believe the legitimacy of that is that a lot of fishermen already in a bad environment had nowhere to fish. They don't have nowhere to fish. Was not a, a, enough uh, water for all these boats to fish in the Florida Keys. Hmm. Uh, back then at night, you used to go to Keel South Bank or any bank in the Bahamas. And it was like a small town. You can see all, you can see 20 American vessels right there at night with mm-hmm. the lights on. Hmm. And uh, yeah, that was a problem. Everybody was running out of money. And then they start asking everybody, you know, they will do anything to save their house, to save their car, to save their boat. And everybody wants to go on the marijuana business. Hmm. So that's how I started. I finally convinced this guy, Marcial, to go on his boat and do a load. Uh, because a friend of mine come and told me, see if you can convince him to go. And I finally convinced him. We went and we got the first load in. I made my first $20,000 and uh, what's going if, to me? I was discovering the whole world. Hmm. I'm a country boy. I, when I born in Cuba, we don't even have electric light at home. Or we don't even have uh, running water. What you can call a real country boy. Hmm. And I come to the states. Uh, then I just growing up. I probably have 17, 18 years old when this is all this is happening. And I, I can go and buy me a, a brand new car. Back then, you can go with a, you can put six thousand dollars in a Puglis bag and go to the car dealer and get you a brand new Monte Carlo. So you could put six thousand dollars cash in a grocery bag and go to a car dealer and just sight unseen buy a Monte Carlo. Yeah, you just can tell him I'm gonna buy this one, gas it up, and leaving. Mm-hmm. With six thousand dollars back then, you buy a Monte Carlo or a Grand Prix, a very nice car, a, a Cadillac was probably seven, $8,000. So why quit or why not doing it? Hmm. Guidelines for marijuana was 18 months maximum. It doesn't matter how much pot you bring in or you got busted with it. That was the time they give people, 18 months. Now, you know, Jose, uh, in closing, I saw something that is, a, you know, it's pretty sad. It's a photo of you with your friend, your fellow smuggler, Antonio Bascaro, who was yeah. a CIA-trained, uh, you know, freedom fighter who dabbled in the pot business and got snagged. Um, now we're talking about 36 years later. Uh, there's a photo of him, and I'll post it on our site. He is the oldest marijuana prisoner in the United States. He's he's turning 81, right? And he's still yes. in the system. And there have been people who've done worse, right? They've there have been murders. Uh, uh, you know, cocaine deals, hitmen and the like who've served far less time and, and cooperated. And this is a person who, for whatever reason, Obama has not pardoned. This is a person who was trained by the CIA, who uh, is looked at as a hero in many circles, in exile circles in Miami. And he's your pal. And, and what are your thoughts in closing on him still being in jail and potentially finishing his life in jail? 
I don't think it's fair at all. And I'm going to tell you something. After I start growing up and making more money and having more power, because money is power, I surround myself with a lot of good people, I said, and smart people. It's not that I'm a genius. But like uh, Bascaro, he was my pilot. That's all he was. He was my pilot, and we bought an airplane, and he used to, we used to look for places to bring part in from the airplane, and then we check it from the ground. We looked for the boats when, I, when they got lost, dropped in the parts, stuff like that. Uh, that was Bascaro's role in this. But it's not only Bascaro. Bascaro got 60 years. But I got other guys that were, they was trained by the CIA, and they ain't got nothing. I got Evangelio Rufin, which uh, was my first wife's uncle. When they finally arrested him, they dropped the charges on him because the government cannot prove that they was looking after him all those years. Mm. We got another big shot here in Miami. Miguel Diaz de la Portilla's father, Miguel Diaz a Sargues. Okay, he used to work for me. When they finally arresting, like eight years later, they called me to testify against Miguel. We went to trial in Pensacola, and they dropped the case. Do you know why? Because the government cannot prove that they was looking for Miguel all these years. Hmm. To me, Miguel was working for the government all the time. Because Miguel fixes his income tax every year. Mm-hmm. He never moves from his house. And now the government is going to tell me that they never found him. And like that, Gustavo Fernandez, he did get 50 years. He, it's another long story. Jose, all of this stuff blew up in the Iran-Contra scandal where, you know, to shift to the 1980s, it pretty much came out that the, the Reagan administration, actually rogue figures in the Reagan administration at the very least, looked the other way while cocaine was shipped from South America to South Florida and planes were shipped back into Central and South America with arms for the Contras, uh, that at least it was a case of salutary neglect. In closing... Um, and you have the final word on this. What is your perspective on the the war on drugs? Um, Vice President George Bush, 41, came to Miami in 1982 and 1983 to launch the South Florida Drug Task Force. Do you think it has worked? Do you think that there's any end game to it? Do you think that there's any moral to this story? Let me make you uh, a little bit of the story of what I think. I believe the normal American father and mother... After all the propaganda they threw up on the war on drugs, people start hating us. And when any politics can get votes for anything that they said, that's what they're going to do it. And they know that people didn't like smokers, then people didn't like drugs, and that's why they went so hard on it. But now I'm going to tell you the other side of the story. Me, Jose Acosta, I helped the Contras in Guatemala for three years with house, uh, anything that they need, food, passports, or whatever they need before President Riga got the approval for Congress to get the money to help the Contras. 
So you helped the CIA-backed Contras in Nicaragua, which was fighting the leftist regime, pretty much with the acquiescence of the administration. What I'm trying to tell you is this. President Reagan sent Oliver North to sell weapons to the enemy, to get money. They let me function, and they let everybody function, because a lot of people was helping this co- the Contras with money. Hmm. And then what happened was that if the U.S. cannot control everything, they're not happy with you. What happened was then once they got the money and CIA comes involved with the Contras, I got extradited from Guatemala to the U.S., which is, was not an extradition. was a kidnapping. They never take me in front of the judge in Guatemala or anything. They just put me on the plane and bring me to Miami. And the FBI say, Acosta, welcome home. And I said, well, it's a pleasure to be home. I missed it. And that was the whole story. In court, I tried to prove that I was kidnapping Guatemala. And George Hilby told me, no, Acosta, we're going to try you for all the counts that you have here, and then we discuss if they bring you legally or illegal. And believe me, it's not too many people that they have got 60 years for marijuana in the U.S. In closing, what was your original sentence and you served 12 years? How, to what were you sentenced? I was sentenced to 60 years on the CC, which means Continuum Criminal Enterprise. And how did you only serve 12? Well, I guess for uh, a lot of reasons, because I helped myself to get out of there. When you go to prison and you got a 10-year sentence, you can, I mean, I I always think that I can do 10-year sentence. So that worked with me. I know that I was doing something wrong. Uh, When you got a 20-year sentence, even a 30-year sentence, you can make plans. When you got a 60-year sentence, they're going to bury you alive. You ain't going nowhere. And that's what happened to my friend Antonio Vascaro. That's why he's still there. Uh, how I get my sentence reduced? I cooperate with the government. I give them information and everything that I could. I was like a war traffic to them. I never testify against any of my colleagues, any of my friends. Well, I appreciated Jose Luis the Hose Acosta, one of Marimbero from the 1970s, a very prolific and famous uh, Cuban exile smuggler. I look forward to hearing from you soon, and I look forward to the movie. It's seven years of story. I cannot tell them everything in 10 minutes. (laughs) I appreciate it. We look forward to it. Okay, my friend. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Actually, you know, to pay homage to this episode, let's call him Juan the Razorblade Valentino of audio image recording. He was called the Razorblade because he used to splice audio tape with a razor blade, but that's neither here nor there. We are on NPR One, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Acast, Apple TV, CompuServe, Thruster, you name it, man. You can get us on anything. And if you really want this show that badly, I'll burn an MP3 for you. Holler at me at Full D Radio on Twitter and on Facebook. And do tell me if you'd like to sponsor as well. I am Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs> <laughs>